Uh, good morning. My name is Paul Fowler. I serve as our Lake Forest campus pastor. So good to be sharing with you. Uh, if you're visiting, our senior pastor, Mike Woodruff, usually teaches, but I am speaking today. He'll be back next week, and I'd love to have you back next week as well. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who doesn't know what they're talking about at all, but they're kind of saying it as if they do? This is quite frustrating, especially if you, you do know what they're trying to talk about. So you have to find a way to listen to them and not make that weird face that they're clueless, and then politely tell them, you don't know what you're talking about. Maybe you've had this happen where you tell someone what you do for a job, and they say, oh, yeah, 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 I know, you must do this all the time. To which you say, no, who told you that? I don't do that. Maybe you're a lawyer, and someone's like, oh, man, you must be in court all day, and you dress nicely, and that's what you do all the time. No, I don't do that. I don't practice that type of law. Maybe you have, maybe you're a manager of a large team, and you have employees that are like, oh, I know what you do all day. You just sit in your office and make sure we're all working, and you don't have any bosses. You get to do what you want. No, that's not what you have to do. Uh, maybe for you, you are a stay-at-home parent, and so you tell someone that's what you do, and they're like, oh, that must be so great. You get to be with your kids all day. <laughs> get to have lunch with your friends and go on nice walks. To which maybe you say, I wish I could just sit at a desk without people grabbing on me all day. I had this happen with my daughter about uh, a few months ago during the summer. I took this job six months ago. And so it's Monday morning, and I'm heading into the office, and she says, Dad, where are you going? I said, well, I, I got to go to work. I said, Dad, it's Monday. There's no one at church. It's not Sunday. What are you doing? She was so confused that I had to go into work on a Monday. See, pastors, we, we work other days during the week. Maybe you've had a conversation about kind of social political issues and someone kind of espouses this stuff that they think they know. Usually it starts with this, oh, did you hear about? Or, or, or did you know such and such? They're like, oh yeah, did you hear about this? And they're going to be doing these things and this is what's going to happen. And then you say to them, who, who told you that? Oh, I read it online. Oh no. Um, it is fascinating, kind of this human condition that we have that our ability to talk about things that we don't actually know but actually act like we do know them. There, there's two social scientists who actually studied this. It's called the Dunnings-Kruger effect. And so what they did is they asked people, tell me what you think you know most about, be it science or politics or mathematics, whatever it might be. And the second part of the test that they gave them was, here's a bunch of terms that, you know, you said you were confident in this area. Tell us which terms you're most familiar with. Well, the problem is that they put in a whole bunch of fake words and people circled, oh yeah, I know about this and this and this, and they had, these weren't even real things. They had no clue, but they were very confident that they knew what they were talking about. That's why this series on how do you know is so important. Because if you think about the question of does God exist and is the Bible his word and where do we go when we die, it's probably one of the most important questions you'll ever have to answer because someday that time will come for all of us. But a lot of times, maybe you've had this, if you go to a church or people know that you're a Christian, then we're like, oh, yeah, 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 I know about Jesus, and, you know, he's not what the church says he was. Oh, really? How do you know that? Or they're like, oh, the Bible, that was made up years ago. It's not really true. No one really believes that, do they? I've yet to have someone say, here, let me show you the parts that were wrong in the Bible. People don't really know, but everybody feels like they know, and they have a high level of confidence. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, oh, I know that the Bible is true. Well, how do you know? Well, this I know for the Bible tells me so. If you grew up in church, you even know where that song came from. Oh, yeah, I just know I believed it. It's what I've always believed. 
Now, maybe you came to church later in life and became a Christian, and you're like, yeah, I'm all in. I believe it. I know it. But how do you really know? If I asked you, well, show me. How do you know? Now, maybe you're here today and you're in the group that would say, well, I, I grew up in church and I'm fine with some of it, but, I mean, the Bible's inaccurate in some places, right? No one really believes all of it. I mean, how can we know? Maybe there's a third group of you that is here that's like, this is a complete fairy tale. I walked into the wrong building. I don't know why I'm here. I'm glad you're here as well. Because we're talking about the question, how can we know? How do you know what you know? And as we come to this point where we've been talking about, is there even truth? And there's kind of debate in this world. Well, we have to agree that we're just going to have to have a conversation and assume we actually exist and that truth is out there somewhere. We looked at space, the vastness of space and all that exists and how amazing and how big it is but it's still not enough to know for sure. We looked last week at God's word and it's true and there's good things and there's good morals and we appreciate it, but how do we really know? This is the most important part that I think we come to this week, how we can know. And what's interesting is it comes down to who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. You see, because the whole entire theme of the Bible hinges on the fact that one day a sacrifice was to come. One day someone's going to come and he's going to be that person that's going to die for us that we can know God. How do I know? Well, turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible right under your chair there. You can turn to page 1047. And we're going to be looking at Luke 24. How can we know that God exists and the Bible His word is his word? It means that we need to know who Jesus is and what the prophecies were about him so that we can actually know that God exists and the Bible is his word. The book of Luke is written by a guy named Luke. He was not one of the disciples. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul. And he wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And so in Luke 24, when we come to this part, this is after Jesus has died. And I don't have time to go through this verse by verse today, but I encourage you, take time to read this today or this week with your family, friends, whatever it might be, to really get the full story here. But there's a few parts I want to highlight here. So after Jesus' death, we're in Luke 24, page 1047 in the Bible there, the women are going to the tomb and they want to put some spices on Jesus' body because he's dead. You see, they didn't think, oh yeah, we know what happens. He's going to rise to new life. No, they're going there looking for a dead body. So They get there, and the stone is rolled away, and they go inside, and then inside of the tomb is two angels, and look what they say here at the second part of verse 5. They say to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? And look at verse 8. Look what happens. And then they remembered his words. So now they believed. They remembered his words and what Jesus had told them all along what was supposed to happen. So they run off to tell the other disciples, this is so great. We didn't find Jesus' body. He's alive. And the disciples say, you're crazy. What's going on? Peter runs off to the tomb. This makes no sense. You know, he has to investigate himself. He's a man. He must look at him. Can't trust these women, he probably thinks, at this time period. But look at what Peter sees in verse 12. Peter, he runs to the tomb, he bends over, he saws the strips of linen lying there, and he went away, wondering to himself what happened. You see, these guys don't get it. And what's so fascinating is if I was to make up a religion, this is the point where I would put, and I was the only one that knew. 
and that's why I'm important. No, Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't have a clue. He goes to the tomb. It, it makes no sense. These guys didn't understand what was supposed to happen. So the next day, there's two men that are walking along the Emmaus Road, and they're having a conversation about everything going on. And so Jesus appears, and he overhears this conversation. Look at verse 17. Jesus asked to them, he said, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still with their faces downcast. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and you don't know the things that have happened here? That a great question to ask Jesus, who is the person. Like, they, they don't get it. They don't understand. They can't even comprehend that he's here with them. What things, Jesus asked in verse 19. They go on about Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, he was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. This is where Jesus kind of face-palmed, and it's like, how do you not get it? Did you not listen to anything that I said? They keep going on, verse 22. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they couldn't find his body. Oh, no, what happened? They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, and that some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Wow. They just did not understand. There's an empty tomb. There's empty garments that are there. What could have happened? They don't see it. They don't understand it. It doesn't fit into their comprehension. And so Jesus says to them in verse 25, it's a great response, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe that all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, everything that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And then if you skip to the next page, verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight and they asked each other, were our hearts not burning while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You see, it wasn't just seeing Jesus that made it real to them as much as it was, ah, now we're starting to get the whole story here. We're starting to see in scriptures how this is the point of everything that was supposed to happen. Well, they go back and they talk to the disciples and the disciples are still clueless about what was supposed to be and what's supposed to happen. And if you look in verse 40, Jesus appears to them. And this is what it says. When, he'd, when he had seen this, he showed them his hands and feet. So Jesus is there showing them his wounds. And look at verse 41. They still did not believe in it. They still don't get it because of joy and amazement. And he asked them for some fish. So they eat some fish. But look at verse 44. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds and they could understand the scriptures. You see, three different times in this passage, the same thing happens. It's people that are trying to be, use their rational thought to try to understand what's happened and who is God and who is Jesus, and they find an empty tomb and it's not enough. They don't get it. These people are talking to Jesus saying all these amazing things that he had taught about and prophesied about and did, but he died, and now it's, it's the third day and we can't find the body. They just don't get it. The disciples see the wounds in his hands and his feet. Isn't that not enough? Each time, Jesus says, do you remember what I said? He shows them the scriptures. Look at where it says time and time again, this was the whole plan. Yes, I have these wounds here, but you know what you need to do? You need to understand how the law 
and the prophets and the Psalms speak of this day and this prophecy that would happen. You see, this is how we know. It's not because we have to somehow kind of rationalize and figure it out in our own minds and look for this theory and that theory. Instead, we look at the Bible and we say, huh, over hundreds of years by various authors, this was the plan that Jesus would come and he would die. But how do we know? How do you know if I said, well, show me where it says it? Where would you go first? That's why the sermon series is so important. And so for the next few minutes, I want to walk us through a few of the different passage, passages that I think Jesus would have used to explain who he is and why we can know that God exists through him because of what he did and how he died for us. So keep your Bibles handy. We're going to walk through stuff. I might actually go past 24 minutes today. That's a record. Mike's a 35-minute guy. I'm about 22 minutes, so we'll see how we do. Hang along with me here. So we have some of these passages here on the screen for you that I'll read, but there's a few that I want us to turn to together. The first is Genesis 3.15. This is after the fall in the garden, and God is speaking to the snake, and he says to the snake, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So right at the beginning, as soon as the fall of humanity happens and now everything is ruined, God has already enacted a plan that one day someone would come and deal with Satan. Genesis 12, 3, God picks a person named Abraham and he says, because of you, all the peoples of earth will be blessed. Your offspring has an important part to play in the history of humanity. Jesus Christ is Jewish. He's of the child of Abraham. But let's look at Genesis 22 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. It's on page 19 in the Pew Bibles if you're there. So in Genesis 22, we know that Abraham had no kids, and then he finally has one kid, but God goes to Abraham in Genesis 22, and he says, I want you to sacrifice your son. But it's kind of fascinating how God sets this up when he tells this to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God says, Take your son, your only son. It's a little bit redundant there. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah, which would be present-day Jerusalem, and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham actually arrives there. Also interesting. On the next page, verse 12, Jesus says, Jesus, oh, so God provides a sacrifice, and so God stops Abraham from sacrificing his son, and he says to Abraham in verse 12, I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Does it again. Down in verse 16, he says to Abraham, because you've done this, not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. You see, this is foreshadowing that one day God would sacrifice his only son. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Genesis 49, 10. This is when uh, Jacob is blessing the, his 12 sons, the 12 tribes, tribes of Israel, and he says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. You know, at the time that Jacob is saying this, the people of Israel are hanging outside of the great kingdom of Egypt. They're a bunch of shepherds. Why are we talking about kings? Who is this one that the obedience of nations would come? How would even Jacob know that the tribe of Judah would be the one 
that David would come out of and that Jesus would come out of. You see, the story continues to go along as we understand from the beginning who Jesus was to be and what he fulfills. Let's turn to Exodus 12. This is another good one to look at together. It's on page 65 in your pew Bibles there. This is the Passover celebration. And so this is when the tribes of Israel were trying to be free from the Egyptians because they were in slavery. And so God has these different plagues that happens. And so the last plague is the killing of the firstborn son. And what you had to do was to kill a lamb in your place so that God would pass over you. And so Jesus celebrates the Passover the day before he is to be crucified and killed. So Jesus is saying, I am that Passover lamb. So if we look at Exodus chapter 12, there's a few interesting things that we need to know about the Passover lamb. It was a male without defect. Jesus was perfect. Down in verse 10, don't leave any of it till morning, right? Jesus had to be taken off the cross before the end of the day. In verse 13, this is helpful, kind of foreshadowing what we're supposed to know about what Christ would do as the Passover lamb. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And in verse 46 on the next page, did not break any of the bones. We know that none of Jesus' bones were broken. You see, there's so much language all the way throughout the Passover that when you come to see who Jesus is, it all lines up. This was the plan all along. Jesus was the one-time sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11, these are on the screen. The blood makes atonement for someone's life. Substitutionary atonement counts. Numbers 21.9, the reason I mention this is because Jesus mentions this in John 3 where he says the Son of Man has to be lifted up just like Moses puts a bronze snake on a pole and anyone who looks at that snake on a pole on a hill will be saved perhaps foreshadowing the cross. Numbers 24, 17, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel, more uh, language of a king that would come. Deuteronomy 18, 15, a prophet will come. Jesus is a great teacher. But I want us to look at Psalm 22 together. This is on page 543 in your Bibles there. And what's so fascinating about this, and I encourage you to read Matthew 27 today and look at both of these because the parallels here are amazing in how they go together. And it starts in verse 1 when Jesus says, when he dies on the cross, and this is David writing here in the Psalms, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His last words on the cross that Jesus says. But it continues on. Look at verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. These are the words we have recorded in Matthew 27 that the Pharisees are saying. This is in Psalms, hundreds of years before. Who is the person that David is even talking about? Look at verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Is it not crucifixion that this is foretelling one day would come? The piercing of the hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. In the last verse, verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness. Who is he? To a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Who else could this psalm be talking about except for Jesus Christ? David was looking forward to the day that someone would come, 
that would pay for all things, the sacrifice, this continual theme of sacrifice. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Son will, Lord, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will give birth and conceive a son. We'll call him Emmanuel, the Christmas story, if you know that well. If you know the Messiah song, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for to us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulder, this son language that continues to be throughout there. But let's turn to Isaiah 53 together, one last one that we'll look at. That's on page 731 if you're in the little pew Bibles there again. And what I love about this one is in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is reading a scroll and he quotes some of this, and then he just drops the scroll on the ground. Just kidding. But what he says is, today, what I'm reading has been fulfilled in your presence. Jesus is claiming that this psalm is about him, or this word from Isaiah is about him and what he's to do. So a few passages that I want to highlight here, starting in verse 5. Again, this is interesting. It's a different author, but he was pierced for our transgressions. This piercing language again and again, like the cross. How do these people know? hundreds of years earlier, that Jesus would be crucified this way. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Drop down to verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He had a rich man's tomb that he was buried in in the story. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit, in his mouth. And the last verse there on the next page, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who is this that this is talking about? If it's not Jesus Christ and what he fulfilled. Last few ones that I want to share with you. Zechariah 9.9, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. We know that. If you know the Easter story, the triumphal entry. Zechariah 12.10, They will look on the one they have pierced and mourn for him like an only son. Again, this piercing language, this only son, it's repeated again and again and again. Zechariah 11, 13, I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter. This is what Jesus was betrayed over with Judas. They bought a potter's field with it. And finally, Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Who was this old, origins of old person that would come, but not Jesus Christ? Now, I could go on and on and on, and I would love to, but I'm, I'm guessing you, you've probably seen enough. You hopefully get a point that time and time again, if you want to say, how do you know? It starts with reading God's word. Numerous scriptures that continue to point to, look, one day someone is going to come, and all these different authors throughout the Old Testament are talking about it. Hundreds of years before Jesus would even be around, one day an only son is going to come. Someone's going to be a sacrifice. They're going to be pierced. They're going to die. And if it's possible, which I think it is, that Jesus fulfills all these scriptures, right? Jesus is is an historical person that definitely existed. We know historically definitely died on the cross, Does he not fulfill what all the law and the prophets have said? And if that's possible, is it also possible that he was raised to new life, thereby showing that, yes, you can trust that the Bible is God's word. You can trust that God does exist and that he has spoken to you through me. 
You see, I think the problem is that a lot of times when we talk about how do you know, we look for anything else to try to give us evidence so we can understand who God is and how he exists. Oh, let's have a rational argument and try to debate and figure it out that we can try to prove in our finite minds that the infinite and powerful God exists. Let, let's look into the vastness of space and maybe if we look far enough and we might see God or see where heaven is or what exists, let's, let's look at how complicated our bodies are and how amazing they do and that will give us proof that God exists. But is it enough? Is that what works for people these days? Let's look at the Bible and yeah, there's, there's good things that are here but, but not all of it and let's talk about it and let's read about it but does anybody open it up and say, wow, we have to... Read it to understand. You see, you can't know if you're not reading it. If you're basing it on what we're just saying up here every Sunday, that's great, but until you open up your Bible, you won't get it. How do you know is not, oh, well, it's an option or we'll think about it. No, you have to be reading God's word. That's exactly what the disciples got wrong in Luke 24. They were looking for different things. Oh, I don't see anything in the tomb. Hmm. Or, oh, look, here's Jesus. Here's the wounds. Why, how does this work? And they still don't get it time and time again until Jesus says to them, did you read the book? This is why I gave it to you. And I think that same question is for you today. Have you read the book? Do you know? For some of you here today, maybe you'd say, yes, I know, I believe, I'm all in. But if you're not actually reading God's word, do you really know? I challenge you, what are you doing to be reading God's word every day? Are you, are you in a group? Are you doing devotionals? Whatever it is that you would know for sure because you've read God's word, not just because you heard somebody else talk about it. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, yeah, but come on, Paul, you don't really believe that all parts of it are inspired. I would love to talk to you. Show me the parts that are wrong. Let's, let's chat. Maybe you're saying, this is all crazy. I don't know what I should even do or think. Have you investigated it? Perhaps you're saying, well, there's lots of good religions that are out there. But yes, there's plenty of bodies of other people who said, I know who God is. But through Jesus Christ, there's not one that you will find if he is who he said he would be. We didn't call this series, Here's What We Think. We called it, How Do You Know? We didn't call it, eh, it's a good option. More likely than not, we think there's a chance it's not really convincing, is it? We called it, how do you know? Because we believe that we can know. And you don't know just from thinking about it on your own. You know when you start reading God's word that Jesus was who the Bible has been talking about for the whole story. And he proves that he is when he dies on the cross for us and he's risen to new life that also we might know him and God's love for us and have new life ourselves. How do you know? Are you reading God's word? Or do you just think you know? Let's pray. God, we are thankful that for thousands of years you prophesied the day that you would come, that you would die in our place for us. God, we confess that we don't enough put faith in the words that you've given us. Help us, God, that we would be people that would read your word, that we might see that you are who you said you would be, that you are raised again to new life, and that we can be with you for eternity.
And it's in the name of Jesus, who validates all things through his death and sacrifice, we pray. Amen.